Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history. Brought to you by the State Historian and Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. I'm Walt Woodward. We begin 2020 with an interview with author Tom Shackman about his brand new book, The Founding Fortunes, How the Wealthy Paid For and Profited from America's Revolution. Shackman asked an important question most historians have overlooked. Who paid for the War for Independence? Along with an array of thought-provoking answers, he gives a fresh perspective on the national significance of a number of famous Connecticut's, Jeremiah Wadsworth, Silas Dean, Eli Whitney, John Fitch, and Oliver Wolcott, Jr. It's a great start to a great new year, coming up right now on Grading the Nutmeg. For our first Grading the Nutmeg podcast of 2020, I'm happy to have as a guest, author, and brand new grandfather to grandson Luca, Tom Shackman. Congratulations, Tom. Thanks a lot, Walt. Tom is one of those rare and getting rarer species of individuals, a person who's made a lifetime career of being an author. He's written more than 30 books, crafted award-winning documentaries, won a half dozen New York Emmys, and had his film shown at both the White House and in Congress. His book, Absolute Zero and the Conquest of Cold, became a two-hour BBC and PBS documentary that won both public acclaim and the American Institute of Physics Science Writing Award. His best-known recent work, perhaps, is Rumspringer, To Be or Not to Be Amish. He's a lifetime member of the Writers Guild of America, a member of the Authors Guild, and a former president and current trustee of the Writers' Room in New York City, an urban writers' colony. But today, we're here to talk with Tom about his newest book, and let me say up front, I think it's one of your best books ever. Tom has written, and St. Martin's Press has just released, an absolutely fascinating economic history of the American Revolution and the early American Republic titled, Founding Fortunes, How the Wealthy Paid for and Profited from the American Revolution. Now, one rarely hears the word fascinating in economic history in the same breath, but it certainly is a warranted expression in this case. You approach the American Revolution in a way that it's not always common to historians, and it seems more like something that's often used by investigative journalists or IRS auditors. You followed the money. You asked what is perhaps the most important and least often asked question about this period, who paid for the American Revolution? How'd you come to do that? Well, first of all, I think that's my general attitude toward going into any nonfiction subject, which is, how did we get here? What What is this? Where did it come from? Not necessarily always following the money, but there seems to me no sense to just reiterate what we already know about the American Revolutionary Era. Actually, many years ago, in honor of the 1776 bicentennial, uh, I was asked to do a series of films, one of which was about who paid for the revolution. And that really, that particular small film, uh, which was done by National Geographic, was really about uh, a small farm in Pennsylvania, which was raided by both, both sides. I think that's possibly the, where I began to, to think about this. And in, in other books about the revolution that I published recently, this subject really came up. 
it's, it's not only who paid for it, but uh, uh, precisely who were they? And what did people feel they had to give to make this revolution a success? Remember now that 40% of the country, maybe more, was Tory. They didn't really want to break from Great Britain. And even some of those who did were not really sure that this was going to work. So they can't go to the Bank of England and get a loan. As a matter of fact, there were absolutely no banks in America whatsoever. And this was on purpose. The British didn't want us to have banks because they didn't want us to accumulate any money. God forbid we should get a little bit rich. And then we might be a real danger to them. So they had infantilized America economically. And uh, that's the real story of the colonial period. It's part we of the mercantilist policy, right? Keep your colonies policy. dependent on the... Now, now, remember now that that phrase didn't really come into being until 1776 itself when Adam Smith wrote it. Before that, nobody knew what their policy was. They just went ahead and did it. And the Americas suffered. There were a few wealthy colonists, but those were the ones who were trading directly with Great Britain. So at the start of the American Revolution, or in the run-up to it, America or the the colonies that become the United States are an economic dependent of Great very Britain. much dependent. I think we didn't even realize how dependent we were, except when that dependence was was taken away immediately by the advent of war. The Americas fell into a depression that has been estimated to be as serious as the Great Depression of the twentieth century, and it's long too because it lasted a half dozen years. So. We're entering a war. We're in depression. It, it was really quite a very difficult thing to accomplish. And well, as I say, we had nobody to finance the war. How is it going to be done? Who's so, going to do it? So let me ask you a question, because this may come right back to your title. Your title, I think, is really provocative. Founding Fortunes, How the Wealthy Paid for and Profited from the American Revolution. Is this a story of the early American 1%? Absolutely. And uh, it, it's legitimate to ask whether we were always ruled by the 1%. And the answer is probably yes, but that's the short answer. Of course, it's a little more complicated than that. But uh, who, who's going to sit in this Continental Congress? It's going to be people who've already served in colonial legislators. It's going to be people who can afford to take two or three months off from the farm and so on. And it's going to be people who've actually been to college or who have money or something like that. It's an incredibly wealthy subset of people who are in the Continental Congress. Later on, things change a bit, but that's who it is. And they're making these decisions. And they're making these decisions not necessarily in their own personal economic interest, because what they're doing is ipso facto against that interest. They're Jousting with, with England at the beginning, they're not so sure they want to be free, but they've got to get stuff for themselves. They cannot continue to be subjugated as they have been. So we are getting decisions made by not even the 1%, perhaps a half of 1% or less. Remember, we had about 3 million people there. 1% would be 30,000 wealthy people. There weren't that there weren't many, maybe 15,000. And since the family size is five, we're talking about 3,000 men heads of families. It's a very, very small percentage of people. And you argue over and over again in this book that at many, and if not all times during the American Revolution, the United States cause would actually have been lost, but for the willingness of wealthy Americans to use their own fortunes, credit lines, and connections to provision the Continental Army. 
Yet, and I don't think it's only very wealthy people. We're talking here in the middle of the war about the provisioner, commissary, uh, many of whose names have been lost. And these are not wealthy people. These are middle-class people at best, sometimes not even then. But they're putting up their own dollar. They're putting up their own pounds and, and anything else that they have. And they exhaust their own credit. Then they go to their friends and their relatives. They put that up. When Jeremiah Wadsworth was asked to become head of the commissary service, he said, wait a minute, I'm already 50,000 down in the hole. Actually, now it's 75,000. Can you at least uh, give me some continental dollars, uh, which are currently almost worthless, so that after the war, if we win the war, and only if we win the war, because if we lose the war, I'm going to lose everything anyway, maybe I'll get them redeemed, and I won't. Wadsworth had some resources, but many of the people underneath him, from Peter Colt on down to uh, people whose names we don't even know anymore, they were risking things too. They were putting themselves on the line economically but there's, to, to get money for the soldiers and for arms and everything else. That so was why did they do this? I mean, why when do you they think do about it, a person like Wadsworth starts the war with substantial resources and he ends up putting a substantial portion of his fortune up as collateral for the revolution. It's a very risky thing to do. Absolutely a risky thing to do. And I think that it's time that we recognize that this sort of risk-taking is, well, we can't say it's the equation of, of somebody on the battlefield, you know, about to get shot. It's pretty good. I mean, this is this is placing a bet on the future. One of the things that I've, I've found out about these people who were putting up their money and, and so on, throughout the whole 50-year period that I'm talking about in this book, these are people with long-term vision. These are people who say the United States will be something else. It'll be terrific. It'll be what we always wanted it to be. And I'm willing to take a risk because I don't like living under the British in the way that we've been. Even though I, I became reasonably wealthy doing it, Wadsworth might say, it's, it's not the way to be. And everything the British have done since has convinced me that this is just going to happen. They're burning my neighbor's barns. They're doing all of these things that are absolutely unnecessary in, in war terms. But they're, they're just trying to oppress us and trying to subjugate us even more. And we cannot afford to do that. So if we have to take a risk, we will take the risk. And you describe these acts as economic patriotism, right? Yes. Economic patriotism goes all through this period in many different forms. In the the colonial era, it's trying to cut off your nose to spite your face. It's saying, I won't do business with Great Britain anymore. Later on, it, it's risking your fortune to to uh, pro- make provisions for the troops and things like that. And after the war, it takes even more different forms. But there, there's a certain thing. And I don't want to say that everybody's involved with it. First of all, we have all those Tories who are sitting home. Second of all, we have a very large number of wealthy people who are sitting home with their money under their mattresses. They're not participating. So we have what I describe as a very small subset of the wealthy who are getting involved, deeply involved. Uh, in the army, in the these uh, small-time government that was there, both on the state level and on the federal level, and on people who are willing to put themselves out there for no apparent gain. You know, they're not going to have a lifetime of being able to be a lobbyist to the government the way somebody might do so today if they if they risk themselves out there. This is not in the offing. What is in the offing is freedom. What's in the offing is independence. 
the people in the Americas had always been much more independent than we understand that. But and now some of those people, uh, Wadsworth certainly profited, and he made sure he profited at some point. He's, he, yeah, I mean, there's one, no question he stuck his neck out. Yeah. He, but he also charged, uh, he oh, made yeah. sure there was a One, one of the things that, said, that popped out at me when I looked at this period was, we, we talk about the law of supply and demand. I think of it as a very sharp knife, and it, it gets honed during this period so that somebody who is in a position to provide, when the demand is so terrifyingly high, he is able to charge a, a hefty price. And many times in the provisioning end of things, uh, people would take contracts and then not fulfill them. And then they'd have to go back to the tried and true people such as Wadsworth, you know, to get this done. When they're marching on Yorktown, Wadsworth and his partner are provisioning both the French army and the American army. And at the end of the war, they're owed a huge amount of money and they can't get it. They can only get a quarter of it back from Congress. The rest of it, they've got to go over to Paris and sit and see if they can get it. And they get a little bit, and then Wadsworth makes an incredibly stupid bet and buys things that by the time they get to Philadelphia to be sold are worthless. So he has to start all over again. So none of this was necessarily easy. You don't press a button, and all of a sudden the ATM spits out all this money. This is not the way it was done. Truly, the way these credit networks work and how these people work together to protect their interests is mind-boggling. Yeah, terrific. Uh, and we have to realize also it's all based on mutual trust. And if you can't trust your supplier, if you can't trust the people who are going to be selling things at retail for you, it all falls apart. And this, is, this trust had been built up in the colonial period among Americans. It didn't have anything to do with Great Britain at that point. It really had to do with what Americans were doing and trading with one another. We were still pretty much in a barter economy at that time. And barter, of course, very much based on trust. And what these people who were supporting the American cause were really doing is they were putting their long-term mercantile relationships, their credit relationships with people, their reputation, their economic reputations, mm -hmm. I guess, on the line for the American cause. Yes, and the economic reputations and their personal reputation as individuals were the same. Uh, this, this, this is something that we really need to understand is that, that these guys lived and breathed every day what they were doing. And it was important to them not simply to provide sustenance, but as a way of defining who they were. You make that very tight connection between personal reputation and economic reputation. But in the book, you show there's a clear difference between political independence and economic independence. Yes, right? I think that's a different thing. Um, what I say is, and I think this is this may be one of the major lessons of the book, that we understand that in 1783, when the Treaty of Paris is signed, that America has political independence, but it does not yet have financial independence. And the two are really interrelated. And it's going to take another 30 years for us to, to work that out. One of the strengths of your book, I think, is that you carry the story through from the end of the revolution to the end of the War of 1812, at which, you know, it was a little unclear to me whether you are saying that when the War of 1812 was over, America had achieved economic independence. I think, or we're, I think the we're, uh, we're on the path to it. You know, it, it, it's a very long uh, process, and, and we're still very, very involved with Great Britain, but on a somewhat different basis. 
part of the reason I say economic independence has been achieved there is because of the tools that allow us to do that. Uh, first of all, we now have banks. Second of all, we have corporations. I mean, we had none of those things in the, in the colonial period. And the third thing we have is, is the ability to uh, get collateral and find that and use it to get loans. And, and also we, we have a, a, just a structure in which you can do such thing as float $16 million worth of loans because you now have big guys willing to step up and say, I'll take $10 million of that, even though it's worth more than I am, because I'll turn around and lay it off on insurance companies, on individuals, on this and that. And they, in turn, will lay it off on individual buyers. So we have to, ta to take, take this loan of $10 million, we're going to have 20,000 subscribers. Yeah, yeah. You know, this is, this is a process a way of being, a way of generating money, a way of funding the government that had never existed this before. This is uniquely American, then? This it's, it's not quite uniquely American, but pretty much so. And, and, and was developed almost by the necessities of the situation and by what was permitted. Many people came to the United States in its early years because of opportunity, the opportunity to do things that they'd wanted to do at home, but that the laws at home had prevented them from doing. They couldn't own their own shops. They couldn't buy shares in a bank. They couldn't do anything that's going to aggregate capital that'll allow them to, to go and do any of a hundred different things. It was not available to them elsewhere. But in the United States, it was becoming available. And that was the exciting thing. It wasn't necessarily, quote-unquote, freedom. It was the freedom to do certain economic things that would assure their future and their families' futures. Do you think, they, do you think the people who emigrated to America thought about it in those terms? That Absolutely, definitely did, because they were coming over because they knew they had skills. They actually had to escape where they were in the British Isles. It was illegal for them to emigrate if they had any skills whatsoever. So they were doing this by whatever means possible to get here. And then, you know, they'd send for their families when they could and all of that kind of stuff. Uh, but these are people who really wanted to be here, not because they were escaping something awful there. They could do okay, but they could never advance. The United States gave them the opportunity to become more than what they were by birth. I'm jumping around a bit chronologically, but I'm thinking of this moment near the end of the book when there is a huge loan that has to be floated, and John Jacob Astor, who is an immigrant, gets together with a group of other people who are immigrants, and they're the ones who say, you know, we can underwrite this loan so that America can continue to fight this war against Great Britain. Do yes. And uh, that was a war, by the way, that Nobody knew whether it could be won or not. It really was, in many ways, the second war of American independence. And Stephen Girard, who is a wonderful French-born uh, guy in Philadelphia, and another fellow who was a more recent emigre from the uh, British Isles, uh, each came in, and they pledged uh, among them 10 million bucks, which was actually more than they were worth, uh, to take this loan when the banks in the Northeast wouldn't do it because the banks were full of Federalists. And here was James Madison, who's a non-Federalist, who's, who's trying to float this loan. There was plenty of money, for example, in Boston uh, that could have taken a good chunk of this loan, maybe 3 to $4 million of what was left. They couldn't do it. They wouldn't do it. 
So individuals had to step in. And if they hadn't stepped in, I think we may well have lost the war because it would have had to have been foreclosed almost immediately. I got the sense, certainly reading the book, is that that loan was kind of foundational in making sure that the War of 1812 was pursued through to its Well, the next, the next loan was a lot easier because the structure had been set up. So Astor and so on and so forth didn't have to take as much. They could if they wanted to, but they didn't have to. You know, we've talked about Jeremiah Wadsworth, who who I forgot to mention, uh, took for granted that people know he's from Connecticut, but I'm sure a lot of people didn't know Jeremiah Wadsworth unless they've, you know, been out to Lebanon and seen his stables or been to the Wadsworth Athenaeum, which his son founded. But he is such a, a big player, it seems, in the whole economic development. He seems to change over time, too. He gets deeply involved in banking as banks are established. It's interesting to watch someone who I have known before in his Connecticut orbit or in his merchant trader to the Caribbean orbit suddenly working on a national stage, and he really adapts pretty rapidly. Yes, he was the uh, floor manager, for example, in the first Congress after after the Constitution was passed, he and Madison worked together, and Madison was sort of the outside man, and Wadsworth was the inside man, and and he was perfectly happy in that. He didn't want to be governor, he didn't want to you know be senator or any of those things. He was very happy doing what he was doing. Uh, what's so interesting is, is that here is a guy who proved himself to some very tough uh, characters, namely George Washington, namely Lafayette. You know, he'd, he'd proved himself by what he did during the war. Now, in our American history, we have, especially during this period, we have a tendency to love our generals and forget about everybody else. Yeah. And uh, the war was not won only by generals. The war is won by people in the trenches and, and all of those. And we have to also always remember that wars themselves are always fought by the poor. Uh, they're not fought by the wealthy. You may have remember the wealthy because those are the ones who are educated and they write memoirs. But uh, the people who are not educated, who are not writing memoirs, tend to get forgotten. And also we like to glamorize our, our wonderful uh, soldiers, and they are wonderful. There's no doubt about that. But there are other things. You know, Clausewitz famously said that, that the army travels on its stomach. Well, how does it travel on its stomach? It has to be provided for. It, this is not simple. This was really interesting. I, I've studied the revolution a lot, and the moments that seemed most precarious. I often thought of in terms of troops and the hardships they had to go through. What your book does is really talk about the provisioning crisis that is behind so many of these really terrible moments in the revolution. Well, let's, let's take the most famous one, which is at Valley Forge. Uh, Valley Forge, the, the soldiers are starving. Washington writes a circular letter to the to the governors as well as to one to Congress that we've got, you know, 3,000 men who are unfit for service here because they have no shoes and they have no underwear. You know, I, I think underwear is equally as important as shoes in this regard. And they also haven't been fed. We've only got 25 barrels of this or that. We have no soap. We have no... How are we going to get on? And yet outside of that, not necessarily in immediate Pennsylvania, but throughout the former colony, there's plenty of food. There's plenty of clothing and all of it. And it's not getting in there. Well, there's bureaucratic crap that's getting in the way, but also it, it's not simply that they're starving because they're stoic. 
They're starving because bureaucratic stuff has gotten in the way, because the provisions things is a problem, because Thomas Mifflin, who was supposed to be in charge of it, has, has, has taken his football and gone home because he doesn't like the way he's and being treated. also because it's a competitive market. There are British right. quartermasters the British, the British who will are, buy. British are sitting in Philadelphia, which is, is less than 25 miles away, and they're off. They're able to offer, let's say, a 50% premium to a farmer to sell their goods to them. And the farmer says, you know, I have to sell my goods so I can I can eat. And the, the money, money that the British are giving me is worth more than the money that the Americans want to give me. How am I going to do this? I mean, I'm pretty, you know, I'm, I'm patriotic, but uh, I have to eat too. So how are these provisioners, quartermasters, like Nathaniel Green, like Jeremiah Wadsworth, how are they able to come up with provisions when it is such a contested market and, and people are holding back? Well, they try pretty hard. You know, they offer a good deal. Uh, they, they twist a few arms. They don't exactly go in at gunpoint, but almost everything that. And by the way, when the army is about to go down to Yorktown for this all-important battle, only then does Madison in Congress get a bill passed that says you're allowed to take these provisions without payment so, because we have to do this. But before that in the war, especially at the, even at the beginning of the war, Washington was incredibly reluctant to, to confiscate anything. He didn't want to do that. He didn't think that was appropriate in a democracy. One of the things we really don't understand is how willing Washington was to subsume whatever he did to democratic principles and to civilian control of the army. And really to be willing to see his men starve rather than to go against his principle is a... Not only his principles, but what he thought to be the principles of democracy. It's pretty impressive. Let's go back to some of these Connecticans who appear in your book. You, you know, you weren't writing, you're not the state historian, you didn't have to write a book about Connecticut history, but they're all over the place. One person who fares much better in your book than many historians have treated him is Silas Dean. Silas Dean is, I think, uh, one of the more mistreated people well, in, Ameri in American history. Well, a lot of history. people don't really remember Silas Dean. So well, I mean, you know, let, let's talk about fake news here. I mean, uh, what happened was that the, the news cycle about Silas Dean was controlled by his enemies, and that has subsisted down to the present but, day. But for people who don't know about his work well, in size, France uh, or in the Continental When, when uh, the Continental Congress needed to buy things, uh, they sent two people out. One was William Bingham, uh, who went to the Caribbean and eventually came out to be the wealthiest American of all. The other was Silas Dean, who actually had much more experience and was sent to Paris, uh, which is, is, uh, has more sharks in it than the Caribbean does. So Silas Dean is, is in there, and he's trying to do a lot of things. And he's, he's wheeling, and he's dealing, and he's not making a penny for himself. But among the people that he has to deal with is Arthur Lee, who was the third commissioner along with Benjamin Franklin, who gets there a little bit later, and who, by the way, was a friend of, of Dean's and never ceased to be a friend of Dean's. And so a lot of the stuff that, that Dean did uh, in association with Beaumarchais and others, uh, was greatly to his credit and wonderful for the United States. If, if Silas Dean and Beaumarchais had not been able to get 
uh, ships through with with cannon and and, and shot and all sorts of things. Um, we, we would have not have had the Battle of Saratoga to win. We uh, there have been many other things like that. So Silas Dean had actually done a great deal for uh, his country, and then suddenly on the when he's on the verge of, of getting an honor from from the king of, of France, uh, he's called back and put on the carpet and said, you know, uh, where is your receipt for your taxi ride here? I mean, we, you know, we need to have all these things. And when yeah. he produces whatever receipts, and he can, we don't like those receipts. So Silas Dean got uh, screwed royally. Um, they offered him $10,000. Um, he said, well, no, really, it's more like 200000 um, I can't, if I take this 10000 I'll never see the other 190000 Did he ever and see? He didn't. Any he of never, it? He never saw it. He died. He, he went a little bit loco and died. And uh, in the 1820s, uh, his descendants finally got some sort of a payment. A little bit late. But, you know, if you, if you look at Wadsworth and you look at Dean, these are both economic patriots. They both work for their country. One ends up being remarkably successful, yeah. and one dies in penury. He died in penury and, and, and uh, also hated. And with his reputation in shatters. Yeah. Yeah. Well, but, uh, but uh, he, he contributed to that, too. So I mean, he's a very complicated, interesting character, and we don't deal well with complicated, interesting characters in American history. We prefer our people to be one- or two-dimensional and, uh, and to fit very well on pedestal. We really not, everybody, not everybody merits a pedestal. We do like stereotypes, and we don't like I don't know about like stereotypes, but we like, we like things a little bit more simplified than they usually are. Yeah. We like our characters black or white. We don't like them mottled <laughs> or dappled. Two more Connecticans. I found their stories really interesting. They, they figure in part of this economic development in the early United States through their inventions and their history of patents. And it's a very contrasting story. Just like Wadsworth and Silas Dean, the story of Eli Whitney and John Fitch both of whom sought to profit from patents, had very different outcomes, didn't they? Well, the Whitney story is kind of fascinating because we today think all we need to do is get a patent and then we can coin money. Uh, Whitney got a patent on his, his cotton gin, uh, helped, by the way, by Jefferson, who helped him draw and redraw the design, and was sitting on the committee to pass it. And they passed the patent, and everybody said, oh, this is absolutely wonderful. We'll just go ahead and make one, and we won't pay him a dime. So he really never made any money out of that. Uh, John and it was interesting to me, too, that to talk about unintended consequences. He thought the cotton gin was going to lead to the end of slavery. Yes. Uh, he wrote, and he was very excited about it. He said, this, this cotton gin can do the work of 50 men. Therefore, this would end slavery. But what happened in the South and in, and in, in the Midwest, the lower Midwest, was that they just bought more land. And so they needed more slaves, even with the cotton gin, to work it. So it led to an expansion of slavery, which I think probably uh, really depressed him quite a bit. It was interesting, though. Whitney, ultimately, the cotton gin didn't gin up what he thought it was going it to. Certainly. On the other hand, he was able to build the reputation that he got from that into the arms contracts and the, yes. you know, he... Yeah, that takes a little past where... I've gotten, uh, he, he got contract to uh, uh, produce things with interchangeable parts. And uh, Jefferson had seen this 
in in France, and he wanted this very much done, so that uh, you know you could take a part from one rifle and put it into another rifle, and it would work. Uh, it was a very difficult thing to do in the era when you couldn't machine tool thing uh, the way we can today. But uh, it did start the process of of uh, what would be a different sort of American. Uh, industrial revolution, different than that in Great Britain and in, and in, and in the continent, uh, which had to do with manufacture and a certain, certain king. Uh, uh, the other f- fellow, John Fitch, uh, is also p- both a beneficiary and, and a victim of the patent system. And Jefferson uh, was involved in oh, Je- uh, Jeff- Jefferson, probably one of Jefferson's worst decisions uh, was uh, that there were three competing uh, designs for a steamboat. And you have to understand that none of these is the one that eventually prevailed. But they they were before this patent committee, which I would love to have been a fly on the wall to look at because it contained Jefferson and Hamilton and another cabinet member. But Fitch and actually had a working model. He took right. congressional Fitch had, they had, they had shown it, it. Uh, during the Constitutional Convention along with another model from another guy. You know, they're both competing for... Uh, eye time with, uh, with, the, with the congressional delegate. And they did pretty well. It was an okay design. It was no better and no worse than the others. It, it was workable. And so Jefferson said, well, I'm the chairman of this patent committee, and I, can't, I really can't decide among these because they're all pretty good. So I'm going to issue three patents, one to each one, and on the exact same day, at the same time of the day, so that none of them has precedent. Well, this is taking equality to a rather stupid point, uh, because what happens then is that none of them can then go to sponsors and say, give me some money to further develop because they haven't got an edge on, on anybody else. So Fitch's design eventually fell by the wayside, as did the other two. Isn't this ironic? Whitney, who gets the patent on his cotton gin, doesn't profit on it because people just take his idea and make it and don't pay him anything. Whereas Fitch, who gets a, a patent along with three other people at the same time, he makes nothing because no one will invest in the company yeah. because three people have the patent. So Let's call that an early mistake. <laughs> there you go. It's <laughs> but working I, I, out I, I don't want I don't want to leave this with the thing that Jefferson is a bad guy or a stupid no, guy no, in, I, uh, in economic terms. We'll, we'll actually get to Jefferson because okay. I, I want to talk about him a little bit. But I want to tell you about... Talk about one more Connecticut, and then then we can move on. You'll you'll have made this state historian very happy. That's someone who I know very well because of his crucial role in the Constitution of eight, the Connecticut State Constitution of eighteen eighteen, and that's Oliver Wolcott Jr. What I didn't realize is how central a role. He played in economic development in the early republic. What's the best way to make sure you never miss an episode of Grading the Nutmeg? Well, if you use a smart speaker like Alexa or Google Home, all you have to do is say, Alexa, play the Grading the Nutmeg podcast. That's right. Just say, Alexa, play the Grading the Nutmeg podcast. And in seconds, our latest episode will stream over your smart speaker. Of course, you could embellish with a little something like, Alexa, play the Greeting the Nutmeg podcast on iHeart. And that would work too. Anyway, you say, Alexa, play the Greeting the Nutmeg podcast. 
Your smart speaker should connect you to the latest Connecticut history story on grading the nutmeg. It's so simple, even a child can do it. They play the Grading the Nutmeg podcast. That's someone who I know very well because of his crucial role in the Constitution of eight, the Connecticut State Constitution of 1818, and that's Oliver Wolcott Jr. What I didn't realize is how central a role he played in economic development in the early republic. Well, let's call him the inside man to Hamilton's the outside man. Uh, he succeeds Hamilton as Secretary of the Treasury, but he would actually Hamilton's point man for getting work done before that time. And uh, let, let's just take one thing, which is the national debt. Uh, when Hamilton came into office as Secretary of the Treasury, it was estimated at about $77 million. Now, if we think of the total GNP at that time, it's about $200 million. This is a huge, huge figure. So by the time Hamilton leaves office f- five years later, the national debt is at $83 million. And Hamilton's and, and, not and, really wait, disclosing wait, wait, now. the debt, Hamilton, right? we, So it's increased. But so has the population. So has the GNP. So it's actually a little lower fraction of the GNP. Now, Walcott, who then serves out the remainder of time under Washington and also under Adams for most, most of the time, leaves with the debt at $83 million, which means he's actually reduced it a fair amount. And he's also done a lot of other things, bureaucratic things, setting things up and stuff. Uh, um, you know, Hamilton is, is the great starter, but Walcott is the guy who, who carries out a lot of the policies. And I think he, he's underappreciated in, in, in that sense. And he also then became more political than he should have been turning on John Adams, which was not really, I think, necessary. And I think uh, this actually ended up... Um, lowering our estimate of him in, in, in the political calculus. Uh, but he did a superb job. And uh, when his successor came in, uh, after somebody had taken up the remainder of the Adams term, when Albert Gallatin came in under, under Jefferson, he was really quite appreciative of, of all that uh, Walcott had done. Well, and, and Walcott ultimately became a sympathizer, uh, you know, much more sympathetic to the Jeffersonian Republican cause than the Federalist cause. And he ran as a member of the Toleration Party in Connecticut, which ended up overthrowing the Federalist regime here. So um, I think he had a sea change along the way. Let's talk about these. You, you brought up Albert Gallatin, who, uh, you know, I, I he's a name probably only historians and people who write economic histories of the early American Republic know, but you really, it's just fascinating to compare Albert Gallatin with Alexander Hamilton. People know Hamilton now uh, because I think largely because of the stage play. I think they may have an image of Hamilton that is somewhat belied by his policies and his kind of federalist approach to things, whereas mm-hmm. Gallatin seems to be the populist that people would like Hamilton to be. Is that fair to say? Oh, I, that's a little much, but I think we'll go along with that. Um, Gallatin is just such an interesting character of himself. He he was uh, born to more or less nobility, not an actual title, but 
nobility and, and uh, classical education in Geneva, which was a very, very interesting place to be. Um, he'd read all the economic theorists. He'd actually studied it in college. Uh, he, was, he was multilingual. Uh, he decided to leave his patrimony and come to the United States. He did all sorts of things. He was a potato farmer in Maine. He, he was a small farmer. He, he went in to the west of Pennsylvania. He started factories. Some went bust. Some were okay. And all of it. Um, he gets selected as, as a senator. And as soon as he gets there, they try and kick him out. And they managed to do it in 30 days because he, they said he wasn't a citizen long enough. And then he gets himself reelected as a representative. And he becomes the floor leader for the non-federalists during the latter part of the Adams administration and, and writes these books about economics and what's actually going on. And he comes in and, and uh, uh, Jefferson and Madison say, oh, my God, thank goodness for this guy. This is, what we, this is the one we really need. And Gallatin is perfectly happy to stay behind the scene and let Madison and Jefferson be the leader. And, but it's a triumvirate. The three of them are working together. And one of the things they do is they achieve the conservative dream, which is they cut the deficit in half in 10 years. And how do they do? And an even bigger dream, which is not only for conservatives, they close the IRS. <laughs> now, can you imagine this? Ah, that, that'll be really uh, wonderful. Where, where we'll can I get an internal. Albert Gallatin T-shirt? Um, right. And how do they do this? Well, what they did was they eliminated what they call all of the internal taxes, the excise taxes, the things like that, uh, one called a window pane tax, which we can get to at some point. They just stopped this, and they stopped paying a lot of money for the Army and the Navy, and they used the surplus in the budget to pay down. The first year that Gallatin and his triumvirate got in, the budget for the U.S. was $10 million, which was coming in mostly from tariffs. And they used $7 million of that to start paying down the debt. And they managed to pay down the debt in 10 years by half, even as they were paying out a huge amount to buy the Louisiana Purchase. Of course, they're also aided in this by the immense population growth and westward expansion. Absolutely. And, and, and don't think they didn't figure that in, because they did. And they also are changing priorities. What they're doing is saying, we need to support education. We need to support infrastructure changes. You know, let's, let's have this well, road it, across the country. You know, it is fascinating to compare Hamilton's report on manufacturers with Gallatin's infrastructure report on on the national roads and on you know kind of the approach to right. economic development, both of those. Well, we benefit because we can look at them in hindsight. Well, there you, uh, you go. Know, and we say they're both wonderful. They're both prescient uh, before their time and all of that. At the time, both of these reports were essentially said, uh, maybe next year. Yeah, we'll take a look yeah. at this maybe next year. This isn't even on the back burner. You know, but this Gallatin, is in the woodshed somewhere. Gallatin does get part of his road. He gets, and he does, he gets things started, uh, you know, and then, of course, a war comes along and thwarts everything, as it usually does. Well, and that's that's the interesting part. They're very effective in paying down the debt and in in implementing this conservative economic policy. But you could argue that not funding the military lays the stage for the War of 1812. Absolutely. In which they have to ramp right back up they again. They have to ramp back up again. And one of the things that the Congress didn't do, because Congress is generally full of cowards, is that they refused to reinstitute 
the excise taxes that would have been able to fund the war. And that got us into a lot of trouble. Uh, the other thing is that the, the generation that had fought the Revolutionary War was now too old. And uh, we didn't have any trained generals. We didn't have a West Point functioning. We didn't have a U.S. Naval Academy functioning. We had we lacked the whole officer class, uh, and as well as and and you could see it in the early battles of the War of 1812, where the ineptness of the American commanders was really terrible. We managed there because we had some very good people at sea, but on land it was just disaster. William Hull, for example, another kind of Connecticut non-success story, uh, yeah. who was the commander of the fort at Detroit and just decided he couldn't win it, so he surrendered, for which he was court-martialed and sentenced to be shot, but ultimately pardoned. You know, underlying much of this story, it seems it is a competitive vision of who really should be the economic actors in the country? Is it the wealthy and the elite, or is it the larger, the middle class, the, you know, the, the, the rest of us, the 1% versus the rest of us? I could see that playing out in the, and I don't know if it was intentional, but it seems to be yes, woven into this I think this is, this this is a very interesting and important point. Uh, there used to be a saying in colonial America, as a word, elsewhere, which it, it's silly to give money to the non-wealthy people, because if you give it to the, give to the wealthy people, they'll employ a lot of others and spread it around with it. But if you give it to the poor people, they'll simply spend it on themselves. And this was the reason for what we now call trickle, trickle down. down. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, I think we have to understand that Alexander Hamilton is the apostle of trickle down. And, and he believed it, and he had reason to believe it, because the way the economic system functioned at that time was that if you gave the money to the wealthy, they would expand things. And that was fine, but that was already beginning to change. And the middle class was coming to the fore uh, in many and interesting ways, and we can document it in land transfers and things like that. But let, let's take the difference between the Continental Congress of 1775 and the first Congress of the United States in 1789. Um, that first Congress of the United States, almost half of the people in there are self-made. And in the first one, zero, except maybe for Benjamin Franklin, maybe Roger Sherman. That's about it. So what we have is is new class of people coming to the fore who are willing to take on the weight of, of doing legislative work and all of the rest of that. But with that, we have to understand that the economic system itself is changing, that the that jobs are coming because people are making them them making it up themselves. They're going out to the West, they're buying their own farm. They're working those farms. They're doing small workshops. They're doing this and that. And this is not top-down. This is bottom-up, which is a very, very different way of doing things. So that essentially trickle-down is a very, very old way of doing things, which does not necessarily account for the way things are. For example, here in the United States, in the last 50 years, in the 21st and 20th century, the jobs have been created mostly by small enterprises, not by GM, not by the very large thing. The bulk of the jobs are coming from individual entrepreneurs or from somebody who has 
uh, one dry cleaner who's going to explain to two and three dry cleaners. So this is a different way of doing things. It's not to say that there are not some jobs and things that can be created by people with wealth because of, of, of simply their accumulation of capital, their ability to start enterprises. But many of the jobs, many of the lives that are associated with these jobs are coming from the middle and lower. And as parties form, it's the Jeffersonian Republicans who are the the champions for the common man. They, the they are, and they seem to be. But uh, and so, but the other party was not necessarily not the champions of the common man either. There are there are natural flows in in uh, human affairs. Some are conservative, some are liberal to place current labels on them. But they're, they're, they're almost always the these parties that form or uh, form around these principles, which are things are fine as they are. They may even have been better a little time ago. We must take innovation very slowly and only when, it, when it's warranted. And then there's the other party that says, well, you know, there's this whole section of the population that isn't, isn't participating enough, and we really need to be able to bring them up to speed and everybody to have these advantages and so on and so forth. And uh, this, these are natural things. I think any uh, country anywhere in the world generally develops these two kinds of, of, of things that are seemingly antipodal. Sometimes they come together and they have common objectives, but not that often. The, the sense I get, even as there is this this upwelling from the bottom and the economy is being made robust by ordinary people is that the levers of power are still being pulled by these networks of elites in, in both politics and in the economy, certainly in this early period. Is that Sure, but I mean, it's a question of who do you know and what, what it is that you want and what is it that it takes to accomplish that. Uh, if you want to say, I open a bank, somebody's going to ask you what kind of money you have behind it. You know, you can't say, well, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a shoemaker and, and I think that we, we shoemakers uh, need a bank. The answer is, yes, you probably do need a bank, but you're going to have to go to it to somebody else who has money. But that was one of the issues, and I think it was the Bank of the United States, is who's going to own the shares? Is it going to be... Yes, and here's a very, a very interesting thing, because we've come to accept that Hamilton did the only thing possible, that he opened the Bank of the United States with a share price of $400 per share, and they got there many millions of dollars. But at the same time, there was a small bank that was opening up in uh, Boston, and it had the state behind it. And they were selling their shares, are you ready for this, for $8 a piece. And it was 100,000 shares. And it was snapped up. So that's $800,000 worth of capitalization, but spread out over many people. Now, Hamilton's argument had been, well, there are not that many people who can afford $400 a share. And, of course, he was correct. And he wanted the people to be substantial people who were going to own that. But... Uh, if you could find enough people to take 100,000 shares at eight bucks a piece, you know, suppose that you had done the Bank of the United States at $80 a piece. Do you think we could still have found 100,000 uh, share people? I think it's possible. But so there, there were alternatives, but they were not really explored. Uh, you know, on the other hand, we, we had no body of philosophy or understanding behind it. 
uh, concepts such as communism or you know, socialism or, or any other way of doing things. What we had was two two things. We had the British system, and then we had the, these notions of the physiocrats in France, uh, which were not really all that different. So it, it's also a question of uh, how do you find out how to do something in a different way? You can try it on an experimental basis, but if you're the government of a country, you're not going to try it on an experimental basis. It's not a good idea right at that time. So many of the things that Hamilton did, somebody would have had to have done. Whether they could have been done a little bit differently, that's, that's really only an academic exercise to think about. But um, there were alternatives. Um, just, you know, what is realistic to be, to be done at that time? Are there lessons in the founding fortunes that you would say directly apply to the country today? I think so, yes. And I think that mostly uh, lessons for the wealthy uh, saying, we, we need to find ways for you to be more patriotic. And uh, that doesn't mean a tax deduction. It means trying to figure out some other way. Now, for example, let's, let's just pick one out of the air, saying um, during the War of 1812 and actually during the, the end of the previous war and the revolution, um, private individuals were funding Navy cutters. Well, we... Navy cutters are done by the government today, and uh, they're usually named after somebody interesting or something. Now, were these but, but privateers? Or no, they no, were... no, no, some were and some weren't. <laughs> but uh, William Gray was not a privateer. He's in, he's in Salem. He's one of the wealthiest fellows. Uh, wh why can't we have uh, Bill Gates commission a, a privateer today or a cutter or something like that? You know, might might be a lot of fun. There, there may be ways that we can do that. The, the basic, the three three basic principles that the wealthy operated under during that period. One is, um, I represent the non-wealthy as well as the wealthy. They don't, I know my neighbors, some of my employees, they don't have a voice. I'm the elected voice. I am elected their voice as well as my own voice. So it's a paternalistic it's Partly duty. paternalistic, partly realistic understanding the second thing which, which may underlie that and certainly is allied with it is that they have a fundamental understanding that the growth of the country and of their own fortune depends also on the lower classes being able to step up in some way, not equal to them, but, you know, that they cannot only benefit and the lower classes go, back, go down. It has to come up with them. And the third is that there is an obligation of wealth that no, goes along bleak. with the country that, that has to do. You know, the, the, the biggest mistake anybody can make is to say, I'm a genius. This is all due to me. Uh, you know, if I hadn't been there, this wouldn't occur or anything like that. I mean, I saw this one in my study of the, the big real estate families in New York. Uh, the, those who understood that the growth of the city was very much a factor in their own growth of their own fortune were the ones who tended to be the most charitable, the most civic-minded, and so on, because they understood that they had to not only give back, but that part of the source of their wealth 
came from not only their own genius, but from the growth of the city, which they did not have that much to do with, which, which had to do with an aggregate of things. And I think we need a little bit more of that sort of understanding in, in, uh, in the upper wealthy today. We you know, have some of it. Some of it's growing. I mean, the, the interesting thing about the, um, the, the list of people who have agreed to uh, turn over half their fortunes by the time they die. It's growing, and I think it's an interesting list. I happen to know a few people on there that are very happy to be on it. Uh, so I, I don't think that this is a question of the wealthy are so greedy that they don't want to do anything. I think part of it is a question of we're not having uh, ways and means for them to express this patriotism. But there's another thing. Economic patriotism at its core implies a kind of nationalism to it. You are, you are, you are benefiting your country, your community, and yet we're in a global economy now. So how do you exercise meaningfully economic patriotism I in think, a global I think environment? I think we need to concentrate on those things that are the best about the United States, which are, are things that are of use to the rest of the world. It's not necessarily we make better products. It's that we make ideas and we stand behind those ideas. And that, that's a really important way of, of being in the world. And I think that, that uh, most of our wealthy do understand that. It's a question of, of, of how are you going to be able to translate this in doing something. Uh, we have uh, still uh, a culture here uh, which somebody makes a hundred million dollars thinks they don't have enough. You know, they've got to make two hundred or five hundred or something like that. And and uh, uh, it's a question of how much is is enough. Now, this is, has nothing to do with tax policy or any of that. We're not talking about um, uh, whether socialism or not. Or this is this is a question of 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 how do you ascertain uh, what what your obligation to your country and your countrymen and women are. And we could use a reworking of that, I guess. I, I believe so, yes. Thanks. Uh, I, that's a great place to leave this, I think. Tom Shackman, author of The Founding Fortunes, How the Wealthy Paid for and Profited from the American Revolution, and grandfather of the newly arrived Luca. Thank you for being on Grading the Nutmeg. My pleasure, Walt. Thanks for listening. We wish to thank Tom Shackman and the Litchfield Historical Society. For more great Connecticut history podcasts, subscribe to Grading the Nutmeg on your favorite podcast app or listen at gradingthenutmeg.libsyn.com. Or just say, Alexa, play the Grading the Nutmeg podcast to hear our latest episode on your smart device. For more great Connecticut history stories, including our fall 2018 article, Governor Wolcott, the People's Governor, read or subscribe to Connecticut Explored at ctexplored.org. This is state historian Walt Woodward, hoping you'll join us next time for another episode of Grading the Nutmeg. Thank you.